The West Live. The West Live with Ben O'Shea. On Monday, we look back at the biggest stories in federal politics. But today, we're going to look further afield and review the stories that shaped world politics in 2023. And who better to do that than our foreign affairs guru, global futurist, Dr. Keith Souter. Dr. Souter, welcome back to The West Live. Thanks very much indeed, Ben. And so today we're going to review the biggest three stories that were shaping international politics in 2023. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with the tragedy in the Middle East and then go on to Ukraine. And then I think also look at climate change, which ought to have been a bigger story, but is uh, getting overshadowed. But that's going to haunt us as long as the other two are also around. Well, let's start in the Middle East, uh, which all began on October 7, when Hamas fighters invaded Israel in an unprecedented attack that shocked the world. Of course, the problem stretched back much further than that. How did you see this situation playing out in 2023? Well, it's a pretty gloomy situation for this year and also, I fear, for next year as well. The Israelis have made it clear that they want to continue the campaign in Gaza for a few more weeks, if not months. Um, The Americans are getting squeamish about the high level of violence, um, but they're not saying to the Israelis, stop it, uh, which means the Israelis will continue. And I think also, even if the Americans were to say, stop it, I think the Israelis will continue to operate. Highly controversial inside Israel itself, because it's interesting that no hostages have been released as a result of military operations. Um, The hostages have been released because of uh, prisoner exchanges uh, that have been negotiated by Qatar. So diplomacy has worked a lot better than the military offensive. The Israelis are determined to eradicate Hamas. They may well be able to wipe out a lot of the warriors, but not the ideology. And I fear that what they're simply doing is planting seeds for a new round of conflict. The other worry that I've got is that the uh, President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, a few days before the October 7 massacre, simply said that, oh, the Middle East is quieter now than it's been for many years. So the American intelligence service, which spends so much money on spying, itself was taken by surprise by that tragedy on October the 7th. And when you look at the range of American responsibilities around the world, if they can't get their intelligence correct, uh, what hope is there for the rest of us around the world if the Americans can't uh, accurately predict what's going to be happening in the world? It it means that we're entering into 2024 in a very dismal state indeed. Mm. And you mentioned the response around the world. Uh, There's a resolution uh, that was before the United Nations Security Council, which has been postponed now, um, calling for a sustainable ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, There have been protests around the world, both uh, pro-Palestine and pro-Israel. Who do you think is winning the battle for hearts and minds around the world? Well, I think it's the Palestinian cause which is attracting um, a lot more sympathy than it has done in previous decades. Um, I think that the more there is the focus on the suffering of the Palestinians, remember we're now at about 19,000 people apparently killed, um, the more people are just beginning to question uh, whether the retaliation has gone too far. And it's also, I think, a generational issue. I think that older people like myself who can remember um, growing up in the shadow of World War Two. Um, have a lot more sympathy for Israel than this newer generation coming through who are 
who treat World War II as distant as, say, the Battle of Waterloo and Napoleon. And this will play out in the American presidential elections, where uh, many of those young people who are now complaining about President Biden being too sympathetic to Israel are potential Democrat voters. So it may well be that these people come November next year decide they're so sick of politics, they're not going to bother to go out and vote. And so we may yet see a a Donald Trump victory. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating point to make. Uh, And uh, although I think it'd be hard for uh, Trump and the Republicans to to use it as a real wedge um, based on, you know, sort of historically how American politics has gone. Um, In terms of uh, the situation in the Middle East, Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, it was a bit of a reputational black eye uh, when Hamas invaded. And as you say, it came as a complete surprise to um, their intelligence uh, operations. Um, how has he fared during this conflict uh, domestically? Oh, I think his career is over. I think that uh, prior to October the 7th, there was unrest in Israel because of domestic political considerations with the legal system and all sorts of things. So foreign policy didn't play into any of that unrest. Um, but then the unrest has been put on hold while the threat of Hamas um, has taken centre stage. But I think there are a lot of Israelis who just think that the the longest-serving prime minister has just simply been around for too long and there needs to be a change. Remember, Israel is a nation of 10 million prime ministers. People have very clear views about politics. Um, And I think that um, Netanyahu's career, whatever happens in Gaza, I think is coming to an end. Mm. And now, while this was happening in the Middle East, it took our attention away from uh, the situation in Ukraine, which was the biggest story in 2022. uh, And certainly the conflict there with Russia's invasion of Ukraine has continued uh, all of this year and been just as bloodthirsty. Uh, How have you made uh, your thoughts on Ukraine in 2023? It's interesting. Ukraine has lasted a lot longer in the fight than a number of us were predicting. Um, The Russians have as their secret weapon, and they've done it over the centuries, huge reserves of labor and, of course, huge reserves of territory, which they can exploit. Um, No one's invading Russia, so the second consideration doesn't apply. But the first consideration, huge reserves of labor, certainly would apply. And there have been uh, huge estimations of the loss of Russian life, which is a characteristic of how Russians fight their wars. So this is not a new development. Putin is in the the tradition of the czars and the communist leaders, that they just squander Russian lives. And so we've had a huge number of casualties sustained by the Russians. And the Russians don't provide accurate figures on the total number of casualties. So one thing has been the very labor-intensive nature of the fighting. Secondly, um, fighting over the centuries, over the millennia, goes between uh, being able to attack or being able to defend. So, for example, in the Middle Ages, it paid to be a knight on a horse um, until the Welsh came along with their bows and arrows, in which case it paid to be a defender. So this pendulum of war moved back and forth. What we're seeing now, we're in an era where it pays to be a defender rather than an attacker. So the Russians attacked in February of last year, failed uh, to achieve a knockout blow against Ukraine. Ukraine this year has mounted what was called the Spring Offensive, which was actually a bit bit later. Um, And they then 
ran into the same problem, which is that it pays to be a defender. So all the three areas in which they attacked, on NATO advice, by the way, um, those three areas were all very well defended by um, anti-tank systems, by landmines, etc. And the Ukrainian offensive has failed. Um, it's gained a bit of territory, but basically it has failed. Um, so we go into next year with the risk of there being, um, again, another year of conflict without a con clear conclusion. And the problem for Ukraine is that their Western supporters are get just getting tired. They're, they're just expending so much of their own ammunition trying to help Ukraine that you've got people now worrying about running short of their own supplies for their own purposes, um, as well as being very costly. And you've got a, a, a pro, in effect, pro-Putin movement within the Republican Party, partly spearheaded by Donald Trump, uh, whereby the Republicans would like to see the money uh, going to Ukraine just simply cut off. Um, so it's going to be a very difficult year next year. My fear is that we will end up with a North Korean-type solution to the issue. In other words, that, um, in the same way that we had a three-year conflict between um, uh, North and South Korea, um, we finished in 1953 with an armistice agreement whereby there was a ceasefire but no peace treaty. And instead, you've got one end of the peninsula occupied by North Korea, the other end by a separate government in South Korea. And my fear is that Ukraine may well end up losing 10 to 15 percent of the eastern side of Ukraine and the southern side of Ukraine, because the uh, Ukrainian government will not be able to liberate those areas. And by the same token, the Russians won't be able to move onto the western side of Ukraine, around Kiev, etc. So I, I fear that we will just simply get a stalemate in that part of the world. Yeah, it does seem as though that is the inevitable conclusion to this. And now the final story we're going to touch on today is one that, as you made clear at the start of this segment, has not got as much attention as it probably deserved, given the stakes that we're talking about. And I'm, of course, talking about climate change, uh, which came to a point uh, in the past couple of weeks with the COP28 summit in the United Arab Emirates. When it comes to climate change, how far did humanity come to solving the problem in 2023? We're making very little progress. I'm sorry to sound like Greta Thunberg, but I think she's on the money. Um, I think that deep in her bones, and also the the younger people that I teach, I teach uh, American students, and in their bones, they feel that the world is heading towards a catastrophe. Um, and certainly when you look at COP, which was the Conference of the Parties, which is the bringing together of all the people who had agreed to a UN treaty on climate change originally 30 years ago, and they then meet uh, usually on an annual basis um, to try to enhance the provisions of the treaty. Um, and so this year's conference was held in the Middle East. Um, next year it'll be in the part of the old Soviet uh, Union. I think it's Kazakhstan. And then after that, it'll be the year after it'll be Brazil. Each time they meet, it's to tighten up the um, emissions uh, going into the atmosphere. And every time they meet, they fail to make a huge headway. Um, for the first time, this has been going on now for 30 years almost, for the first time they're now talking about the issues of uh, phasing down, uh, not phasing out, 
but phasing down um, the uh, carbon energy system. So that's oil and gas, coal, etc. Um, so it's taken them 30 years to get to that point. So the situation is not good. And, and what I find intriguing as someone who comments on international politics is how often I find myself also having to pay attention to climate-related matters. For example, we're, we're very concerned, obviously, about the growing military power of China. And yet increasingly, a lot of that uh, military power, particularly the army itself, is being deployed domestically to cope with fires and floods inside China. Uh, the same with the United States. Um, they have a huge base at uh, Norfolk, Virginia, which I've actually been to. It's a um, huge naval base. But when the Atlantic begins to get really stormy, you've got to disperse your ships out to sea. Otherwise, they'll just bash up against one another within the harbour. So in so many ways, the um, weather is intruding into everyday affairs, um, even just looking at today's media coverage of the situation mm. in, in, northern in northern Queensland. So, you know, we're being reminded all the time that weather is a real problem. And I think that the uh, battle to try to prevent climate change has been lost, and it's already now a battle to try to adapt. Um, and there can be progress made. That's what I try to offer a glimpse of hope to my um, American students at Boston University, I'd say, look, we, we can, uh, bit by bit, um, adapt to try to cope with the climate change issues. A great example of this is the Netherlands. We, a lot of the Netherlands is technically underwater. Um, it's under the sea. But because they've got an excellent system of dikes, which they pioneered, um, they, they've been able to reclaim land and actually become a major food exporter over the decades. Um, so they've been able to adapt. And it may well be that that's the lessons for us, but we've got to be ready to spend up big on um, adaptation projects like preserving coastlines, biodiversity, etc. And I just don't see the political appetite there amongst politicians who are just looking for all these sort of small temporary Band-Aid solutions until the next election comes along. No one's coming up with a long-term view about how we can make the earth safe. Uh, for adapting to climate change. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, political terms and uh, the appetite for those long-term plans are just hard to imagine. Uh, but, you know, when we look back at uh, the world uh, 20 years from now, we'll think, geez, maybe we should have done more. I think that's uh, the inevitable outcome there. Uh, global futurist and foreign affairs guru, Dr. Keith Suda, we really appreciate all the time you've given to us on The West Live this year, sharing your insights and teaching us a little bit about how the world works. We do really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a safe New Year. Uh, and we look forward to talking to you in 2024. Thank you, Ben. You've been listening to The West Live with Ben O'Shea. If the story behind the story matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. 